morning. If you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Page 1774 in the NIV Pew Bible in front of you. <coughs> Excuse me. First Corinthians chapter 3. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. But as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, Are you not being merely human? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. What we have not, give us. For we ask this in Christ's name, by the power of your Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, Many of you will remember the story of Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. I assume the groans mean yes. Uh, Two ice skaters whose tragic story is etched in sports history forever. Harding and Kerrigan were two of America's best female figure skaters in the early 1990s. Both were hopeful to skate in the 1994 Winter Olympics. They were fierce competitors when it came to uh, a skating competition, and they had competed against each other for, for years in all different types of competitions. But when it comes to the Olympics... Though ice skating is an individual sport, one would think that you would want your fellow countrymen to succeed, that you would uh, encourage and, and, and build up with this new mindset of the Olympics, of working together. You would set aside your differences and you would work together with this common goal of success for your nation. But before the 94 Olympics, Harding decided she didn't care about this new mindset of supporting and being united on the same team. She wanted the glory for herself. And so her ex-husband and her bodyguard attacked Kerrigan, injuring her knee and keeping her from competition temporarily. You see, the nature of sport is competition. Teams face off not just trying to do their best, but to win, to achieve 
victory. That is the goal of competition. But you see, the Olympics brings in a new mindset. Now you are part of a team that works together under your banner of your nation, your country, and for its good. But if one of the members or all of the members goes back to the old mindset of win at all costs, then it is to the detriment of the individuals and to the collective group. This is a bizarre and imperfect illustration of what Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth. The ancient world understood and applauded promotion of the self, the following of a superior teacher to others, the, the following of a superior leader, thinking that your gifting is, is better and more important than others, the, the proliferation of, of jealousy and strife among individuals in an effort to uh, achieve more than others or, or to be more highly thought of by others, right? Let us make a name for ourselves. The natural curvature of the human heart is bent in on itself. Promotion of self over others. Worship of self over anything, and especially God. The exact opposite is what Paul taught for one and a half years in the Corinthian church. Now, I know it has been uh, several weeks since we were all together looking at He Holds Us Together in these first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. So we're remembering, remembering that there was division in this church. They, they were divided. People were picking who their leaders were or they were identifying themselves over who baptized them. And that became a point of boasting for these people. They, they were beginning to look a lot like the, the surrounding pagan community or they were beginning to behave as they had behaved before the gospel came, before their lives had changed, before they heard the good news. Jealousy, strife, discord. There's no unity among the diversity in this church. And Paul reminds the Corinthians that they are united in Christ, who died on a cross, which sounds like foolishness, to the rest of the world, that God would choose to suffer a humiliating death on behalf of his people so that they can live their lives forgiven and in the spirit. But we know that the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. We know that the weakness of God is greater than the wisdom of, uh, rather than the strength of man. And therefore, God chose the weak to shame the strong. He chose the foolish to shame the wise. And when believers have this understanding, then they recognize that, that, that boasting in themselves or of their gifts or of uh, uh, the allegiances that they have is wrong. It's broken. We saw that we have unity in the Spirit who is the only one who can reveal these spiritual truths and, and, and realities to us. 
That simple knowledge or intellect will never get us to a right worship of God. But that only the Holy Spirit can do that in revealing these truths, these realities to us. And we ended the last time we met together with this division between two groups, the natural person and the spiritual person, and that is where we pick back up. This morning, we are looking at three things, and we are asking ourselves three questions. First, we are looking at position. Where do I stand? Second, we look at provision. What do I eat? And third, we look at problem. What do I prize? What do I desire? Chapter 3, verse 1, position. Where do you stand? Where do you stand? But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. First off, ouch. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good body blow there by Paul. I mean, just imagine being given that moniker. I've been away from you for several years now, and you're still babies, all of you. I am not a baby. I am a big boy. I think this is a little bit how school teachers have felt over the last couple of weeks, yes? We've done a good job of teaching you last year. How have you grown over the summer? Oh. You're still babies, and you've forgotten everything that we've taught you. Do you know why the math book had to go to therapy? Because it had too many unresolved problems because the student forgot everything over the summer vacation. That is the end of my teacher jokes. You can rest easy. Okay, so what is Paul saying here? What is he saying to them about their position? Because this little verse has confused so many well-meaning Christians over their own position in the faith. And so I want us to have clarity here. Now, if you remember, as we just talked about, in in the chapter right before, at the end of chapter 2, Paul says that there are natural people, which means those who are outside of Christ, and there are spiritual people, those who are in Christ. So has Paul just created a a third category? Let me put up an image here that may help you. Now, I know Campus Crusade had used this for a long time, and the idea is that here is the natural man, and on the, the throne or the control center of his life sits the ego, and, and Christ is outside of him. Then there's, you have the spiritual man in which Christ sits on the throne or the, 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 um, the control center of your life, and the ego is at the foot, and uh, your, your um, interests in life are, are centered on Christ. But then there's this third category of the carnal man who still has fear and worry and gross sin, and Christ is in him but not on the throne. Now, this is actually, this is bad theology, okay? There there is no third category. Let me me give you uh, another illustration here. This is the idea 
that individuals accept Christ at some point in their life, maybe when they're young, maybe when they're five or six or seven, but then they're not filled with the Spirit. They're living this defeated life. And they need this event in their life that people call the crisis event, where there's a a dedication, and, and then faith comes in and takes off in their life. Let me show you another slide. Some people from this category actually take it a bit further. This is sort of the let go and let God theology, which is that you're a carnal person, then you have your crisis moment, and then you continue to have crisis moments throughout your life, and you are gaining and losing your salvation in every one of those moments. Again, this is, this is bad theology. Now, it may feel like this is the experience that you have in your life. It very much would sound like my own experience, made a profession of faith at a young age, lived my life, heard Bible stories, but didn't know what I was doing with it 100%. And then as I grew and matured and understood things better, then then my faith, you know, there was this crisis point and then it took off. But this is not the reality and it can be very dangerous theology. It came out of a lot of this big tent revivalism Uh, You know, the need for people to come down, to come forward, to make a profession for Christ and have these crisis moments in their life. And then the evangelist can go and and, and report X number of people came to salvation when really most of those people were probably already professing believers, but were maybe, uh, you know, living in some sin they were struggling with and it was a, a reconfession or whatever. But based on Scripture and not our feelings, this is our reality, if you need a graph. The moment you come to Christ, you come to Christ, and you have the Holy Spirit. You are justified by Christ, meaning you have been made right with God. It's a single, instantaneous, completed act once and for all, never repeated. It instantly removes sins, guilt, and penalty. But then you see the ebbs and flows that our life goes through this as we walk with our Lord. Low points, high points, but always in an upward trajectory. This is your sanctification. This is your development. This is your growth. It's a continuing process. It's gradual. It's lifelong. You're gradually removing sins, pollution, and power, or rather the the Spirit is doing that in you as you grow, as you develop, as you mature in Christ. But the point being, if you have accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, then you have the Holy Spirit. There's no such thing as a believer who is without the Holy Spirit. Paul calls these Corinthians who were, didn't look like they had the Holy Spirit, but he calls them brothers, which means that they are in the faith. What their issue was, was that they're not living as people who have the Spirit. Why? Well, we don't know for sure. But essentially, their affections had not changed. 
The Corinthians were clearly not fully aware of how wonderful it is to be in Christ. The Corinthians are clearly not fully aware of how wonderful it is to have the Spirit. The Corinthians are clearly not fully aware of how wonderful it is to have God's love set on them. And yet they were in Christ. They had the Spirit, and God's love had been set on them, but based on their actions and their behaviors, they don't fully recognize or appreciate it. Let me illustrate. Imagine a young man whose family is not particularly wealthy, but the, the, the parents, the father loves his son, and, and he spends time shaping his son and building him up, disciplining him, encouraging him, loving him. But the boy goes to a school where the other families have more wealth, and, and the boy sees how the, the other children, their, their, their fathers are, are giving them un, um, untold amounts of, of material possessions. They're buying them whatever they want. They're sending them on extravagant vacations. And the boy whose family doesn't have much begins to feel jealous. And, and, and even at times he may resent his father for, for not being able to provide all these material gifts. And it's not until the boy is older and mature and he realizes that all that his father had given him was far better than any material possession. He gave him what he needed. He was equipping him for, for living as a mature adult. That's where these Corinthians are. They, they're confused and they're distracted. They're getting caught up in all of the culture that's around them and they're not paying attention to the gift that has been given. Beloved, this is where the rubber meets the road. Do you understand and appreciate how wonderful it is to be in Christ? To, to have eternal life, to have an answer to the question, what is the meaning of life? To have forgiveness of sin, to have freedom uh, from the power of sin, to, to have freedom from guilt, to have a relationship with God, to have the Holy Spirit, to have access to the wisdom of God, to belong to a, a caring, loving community and living out the purposes of God. But the heat of the question, it still remains. Where do you stand? Are you in Christ or are you out of Christ? Because there is no third option of, of carnal Christian. Because it is entirely possible, especially here in the Deep South, that you grew up in a Christian home and you went to church and you said a prayer and you walked an aisle and you are still outside of Christ. It's not real to you. You're only inoculated because you're surrounded by it. You need to get in the boat. You need to examine yourself and ask where you are positionally. So there's a challenge to those who are not yet in Christ. And, and I, my call is that you would see the benefits 
that you would hear the calling, that you would know that he is drawing you in. His desire is for you to be a part. But there's also a challenge to those who are in Christ but are infants in Christ. Now, if you are in Christ and you're an infant in Christ and you just came to the Lord, praise God. We want you here. We want you to grow. We want you to develop. That's, that's where you are. Praise God. But I'm talking about people who are infants in Christ and have been infants in Christ for a long, long, long time. In Colossians, Paul says that his goal is to present every believer mature in Christ. Are you still paddling around in the baby pool as a full-grown adult, never growing in your faith, never developing your faith muscle? If so, though you may be elect of God, though you may be saved by Christ, at some point you have to ask yourself if you actually are. Have I been saved by grace through faith in Christ so that I cannot boast, but rather give praise and adoration to God who saved me. And because of that, I want to know and love this God and grow in my knowledge and my understanding and my faith in him. The heat of that question should be close to your face as you feel it, as you consider it. This leads us naturally to the next thing we're going to discuss, which is provision. What are you eating? What are you eating? Not your diet, your spiritual diet. Verses 2 and the first half of 3. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. What does Paul mean here by milk and solid food? Are they different teachings altogether? Come down this aisle for milk and come down this aisle for solid food. Listen to the corresponding verse from Hebrews chapter 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. What solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Listen, milk is good. Right? Milk is good. When you are a baby, it nourishes you. It has tons of vitamins. I'm talking about human milk, not cow's milk. It's essential for newborns and infants. It's all they consume food-wise. You stick a slab of meat in a newborn's mouth, and you will not be wearing, winning any Parenting of the Year awards, I can promise you. But there comes a point... When your child moves from milk to solid food, because they cannot survive on milk alone. They need more nutrition. They need more sustenance. Our bodies were built to break 
food down in the same way we are made to grow and develop in our faith. There's a point where we need milk early on, absolutely without question. But then there comes a point where we move on from the basic principles. Now, this does not mean that we're teaching something new or something different. It has to do with the depth of the teaching and the grasp of the gospel of the people. Let me illustrate. If we are taught that Jesus loves us and we're content to hold that teaching in its most elementary nature for way too long, then we stunt our growth. If I'm teaching my children about the love of God, I'm going to come up with a simple illustration for them. I'm going to think of something they love, whether it's a person or a thing, and I'm going to say, you know how you love that thing or that person? God loves you like that, but times a hundred, times a million, though they probably won't understand a million. But as my children get older, the way I instruct them and teach them is going to change. It's going to deepen and, and be richer. And so I'm going to talk about the fall of man and the, the separation from God. Now, Christ crosses that chasm of separation and that this is true love. As they get older still, I'm going to be able to teach what it looks like to, to love God and to love neighbor in the way that I respond to criticism, in the way that I share the gospel with my neighbor, in the way that I live my ordinary life. And their hunger to know and grow in these things will develop. Now, there will be ebbs and flows, as we, as we saw in the chart. There'll be moments where things are tougher to grasp and slower and, and, and take time and times where things are faster and, and caught on more quickly. But, but the desire to know and understand the deeper truths that are being taught that should be, it should be growing in us as, as children mature, as children grow. Let me give you a hypothetical example and then a, a real example because I want there to be clarity on this so we're not left with Nothing. Let's say you're a part of a group that comes to, uh, comes to a church, and you love your group. This is your group. These are your people. But, but that group never assimilates with the rest of the church. You never build relationships with, with, with people outside of the group in the church body. And your behavior is one that does not demonstrate maturity. Now, a real example. I've seen this in other churches where small groups had been together for such a long period of time that they would joke about, oh, well, I know how, you know, I know how Bob's going to respond to that. I know what Ruth's going to say. She's going to chuckle, and then she's going to do, right? They, it was too familiar. And the groups had gone stale, and so they came in, and they mixed up the groups, and they, they changed things up, and, and, and many of them got really upset because they only wanted what they were familiar with. Any kind of change was an attack on what they wanted. They wanted control over what happens and who goes where and how things, how things are directed. Now, is that an example of someone that can handle meat? 
Solid food or someone who needs milk? Now contrast that with the group who, who loves and appreciates their group, but, but they also know that they have been called to a larger gathering and, 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 and they desire to be with new people and build new relationships for, for new opportunities for mutual edification. And what about the people who have teeth to chew, but they use those teeth to bite and devour one another, accusing fellow believers of lacking faith over issues of Christian liberty and conscience, attempting to make a law out of everything. Is this an example of someone who is on solid food or milk? Now, here's the key. If you understand rightly your position, our first point, if you understand rightly your position where you stand, how wonderful it is to be in Christ, how delightful it is to have the Holy Spirit, how blessed it is to know that God's love has been set on you, then as your affections have changed, your desire to grow and know and live will change. C.S. Lewis writes, the more we let God take us over, the more truly ourselves we become because he made us, he invented us, he invented all the different people that you and I were intended to be. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give up myself to his personality that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. So when you listen to a sermon, when, you, when you're reading in the Word of God, when you're, when you're participating in a Bible study, are, are you listening and reading and participating and, and being transformed and, and, and allowing it to, to penetrate you and to challenge you and to grow you? And you're growing in your hunger. You, you desire more depth, more light, more everything It won't always look like the straight-line sanctification. That's, that's a lie. And there's no sense in which you finally have arrived to where you're at the pinnacle and you're looking down on everyone else and wondering when they're going to come up. No, it's, it's ebbs and flows. There's, there's moments of, of struggle and, and doubt that come in, but it's always an upward trajectory. There's always growth. There's always development in the long run. And if you're wondering this about your own life, ask a trusted friend. Have a trusted friend who you know has put their saving faith in Christ and ask them if they have noticed changes in your life over a period of months or years, weeks, whatever it is. Position, where do you stand? Provision, what do you eat? Finally, problem, what do you prize? What do you desire? Verse 3, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Jealousy and strife, they're characterizations of the life of, in the flesh. Paul is saying what it means to be human is to be jealous and have strife with your fellow man. Base instincts. It, it, it's exactly what Tanya Harding did, right? Win at all costs. 
That is exactly what human nature does. Now, just take a second and think about a point in, in even the last week, and for some of us it'll be even this morning, where you reacted to something out of jealousy or strife, frustration with someone. You're, you, you are not acting in the spirit where you were without love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There are many times when I am out of step with the Spirit. There are many times when I am being merely human. When I get angry with my children, when I'm short with my wife, this is not being Christ-like, beloved. This is not evidencing the fruit of the Spirit. I am justified positionally, but in my process of sanctification, my flesh still wars with the Spirit. We all do. You're in denial. You make yourself a liar if you say you've arrived. But these are not things that mark me. They're not things that define me. If anything, as soon as I act in this way, I know that I am not justified in my behavior. I know that these things are wrong and the spirit within me is the one reminding me of that and telling me of a better way. I, you want to know if you have confidence that you've been saved, you have the Holy Spirit in you yelling at you, probably more gently. But he's also reminding me of the goodness of Christ of the forgiveness he offers and makes me a vessel of the same forgiveness. I don't want to impede on the, the grace and the forgiveness that my God and my Savior have showed me. The issue with the church in Corinth was that these things marked them. They prized the fact that they were baptized by Apollos or Paul or whoever. They were marked by sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, and so Paul has to come to them and say, you're, you're walking and you're talking and acting just like those without the Spirit around you in Corinth. You are indistinguishable from them. They're desiring and prizing the wrong things and so with milk, but they are saved, they are justified and so with milk, Paul has to go back to them and say what he says to the Philippians. Beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, Think about these things. Practice these things. 
we get this in some sense as Americans, don't we? We, we fight for, for, for what we want. We, we fight for our freedom. We fight for our positions. We, we're not born into economic classes like so many other countries are. We are individuals and we scrap and we claw to get our way to the top, to the top of the ladder, to the top of the food chain. There, there's nothing wrong with a hard work ethic. Paul even says, I worked harder than the other disciples. Yet not I, but Christ in me. But hard work is not the problem. The problem arises when the goal, the desire, is to triumph over someone else. When control or domination is the goal, when the goal is success for the sake of pride, that it's for me. That is prizing and desiring the wrong things. That is the the, the heart that is bent in on itself. But that is our nature. Now consider what it would look like if what we prized and desired was instead unity in Christ, love in Christ, peace with one another in Christ, because what we prize is Christ. And this is the example he has set for us to live in him in the fullness of new life. But the church today so often looks much like the divided world we live in. Many of you will have seen the Jesus Revolution story, uh, movie rather. It's the portrayal of uh, the beginning of Calvary Chapel Church from Southern California with Lonnie Frisbee and Chuck Smith. You think of Chuck Smith, this pastor in Southern California, 1968, His church is dying, the numbers are dwindling, and he's preaching about us and them. Those hippies, you know, they're lost, they're completely gone until someone comes to him and says, you you have the words of life and yet your doors are shut to those very people who are looking for God. And you have, in this, you have created division between you and them. And when he's challenged by this, it leads to a change and it ushers in one of the largest Christian movements in U.S. history. And you know what did it? It was the gospel. It was the Holy Spirit. It's the gospel message that bridges cultural barriers. It is the gospel message that bridges generational barriers And God can do it again. But it's going to take mature believers to do it. Position, where do you stand? Provision, what do you eat? Problem, what do you prize? What do you desire? Let's pray. Father, as we think about these interrogative questions from Paul, 
to the church in Corinth, I am abundantly aware that there were no imperatives in his sentences. <coughs> he wasn't telling them to pick themselves up by their bootstraps. He wasn't telling them uh, to tr get up and try harder, to do it in their own strength, but rather it was the verses before that were the indicatives. Brothers, you have Christ. You have the mind of Christ. You have the Spirit of God and access to the wisdom of God, which will look like foolishness to the world. And so it is these indicatives that need to inform us of how we live. Being reminded of the example that Christ has set for us in going to the cross and making us justified with God made right with him, and now we begin this process of growth, of development, of sanctification. And we do not do that on our own. We do it by, the, by your power and with one another, that the evidence would be seen in the way that we treat one another, in the way that we love one another. Oh, Father, that you would use us for these purposes, that you would use this for a movement, if it is your will, to take the light of Christ, the message of hope, healing, salvation, lordship, to the ends of the earth. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. The standing of